fact, right now, though, we are continuing the conversation about those exposures in some schools in Surrey. Even within Surrey, which has been hard hit, there's wide variation. We still have some schools that have had no exposures and other ones that have had very many. And we think that points to a need to actually allow school districts to have different sets of rules and make them stricter at the schools that are harder hit instead of ones that have rules for the whole province. That was Matt Westfall, the Surrey Teachers Association president, speaking earlier today with Simi Sarah. We are now joined by Jordan Tinney, who is the superintendent of the Surrey School District. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. No worries at all. Happy to be here. Uh, I want to get to to Matt Westfall's comments in a moment. But first, uh, Jordan, can you talk a little bit about where the cases are in the exposures? And I know there was some confusion earlier about the number of schools that we're talking about. Yeah, so the schools we have, um, we have five schools, uh, AHP Matthew and James Ardeal and Nicole Woodward Hill and Surrey Traditional. All those are elementary schools. And then we have Tamanoa Secondary. Um, there was a little bit of, of confusion in that there was also a, a case at Kwantlen Park Secondary, but the case was never on site uh, when infectious, so that so that was not, uh, there was no exposure there. And then also we've had uh, an exposure uh, self-monitoring at Latimer Road last night, but that's not a variant. So it's the five schools uh, that I listed first that are, are the ones where we've had variants uh, at site. So five schools with variant exposures and then that one other Latimer Road that you said, that's a, 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 a COVID exposure, but not a variant exposure. Correct. Yeah. What is happening then at this point? How many classrooms, how many people do you know of that are now being told to self-isolate? So uh, we work through the weekend. So we have 293 people, uh, according to our account, that are in self-isolation. That includes 10 classes and uh, that includes 50 staff members. We had uh, 35 staff members yesterday that we arranged for Fraser Health, arranged for the the rapid testing. That's the 20-minute test um, done yesterday. And we're very pleased to to report that all 35 of those were negative. So um, it's 293 overall and 10 classes. And, And as I said, the staff members as outlined. Will there be further testing as well in addition to the rapid tests? Yeah, I'm sorry, I should have added. So so then we did the rapid test. We prioritized staff yesterday because in that one particular school, we, we didn't know whether we would, um, you know, whether we would have enough staff today. If, if indeed people were positive, we're thrilled that they're not. So for all of the other people, they're doing testing today, Monday and tomorrow, Tuesday. These are the 24-hour tests. So they have time slots um, to go to, to stations and they will go and they will be tested. And so through the course of um, between yesterday and today and tomorrow, we'll have all people tested and we should have all the results back. And in the meantime, then, with, with 50 staff and with these 10 classes in isolation, uh, there are no school closures, uh, correct? Correct. Like, there's been no evidence of transmission. So, again, any school closure would be if there was uh, evidence of transmission that was beyond a class or a cohort. And in that case, we've had two of those in the past, right, where Fraser Health declared an outbreak and those schools were closed for two weeks. But that's not our case here. This is what we're seeing, or at least my impression from what we're seeing from health is they're really exercising a, a huge amount of caution and vigilance. They've gone far beyond back in dates, looking further back, and they've, my impression is, cast the, the net wider in terms of more self-isolations than they were, would normally do. Um, this is also a different self-isolation. In the past, when you've heard us say, you know, a class is in self-isolation, it's for 14 days. 
this is self-isolation until you return with a negative test or until you've received a negative test and can return. So um, I think those are the changes we've seen. And, and so for the 50 staff with 35 able to return now, um, you know, the other staff members are, are distributed amongst the other schools. So no, there's no closures. All right. And that's kind of what uh, I, I was thinking that with that number of staff, and I know Surrey's a, a big district, but does there come a point where if, if so many staff members are, are self-isolating, is, is it, uh, do you anticipate that there could be a scenario where a school would have to close not because of, of transmission, but because there just isn't staff? Yeah, that's happened a couple places in the province. They, they, they term that a functional closure where you, you literally do not have enough staff to function, um, but that's not where we are. So, uh, you know, it, it is possible, but uh, we don't see it in this situation, uh, not here. Uh, the clip I played from uh, Matt Westfall with the, the Surrey Teachers Association, he talked about the fact that there are some schools that have had no exposures, which is great. There are other schools in Surrey that have had many exposures and saying he would like to see the district have the authority to bring in stricter measures, whether it's a mask mandate for elementary school or, or different measures to, to try and combat that. What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, Surrey is very different. I mean, we don't pretend to be any, you know, there are lots of other districts which have different numbers, but even within Surrey, as, as the president has said, you know, there are huge variances. We uh, we have schools where there's been high concentration than schools less. You know, I think the provincial guidelines are, are really clear about what the protocols look like, and I think a testament to the 35 people coming back negative when we have had a variant on site and all these self-isolations means that, you know, the protocols appear to be working and holding, and we know we have had seen uh, little in-school transmission, but certainly in Surrey alone, we've had over 1,500 letters uh, of exposure and self-monitoring we put out overall. So I, I think it would have to be a conversation with the health authority and with our government about whether they would let us um, do something locally, uh, even within a district where you might have stricter protocols in certain schools or in stricter re- or in certain regions, but you know, we work really closely so that, you know, our districts share, we share staff, we share families in some cases. And so um, it would be, uh, I think it would be a big leap for one district to go their own way. And we'd certainly want to um, stay within the guidelines and to work them to whatever extent we can. And if we're going to do anything different, we would want to do that in concert with, uh, you know, the, the ministry and the provincial government. Are you concerned, though, especially with these cases of variants? And it is great news that the 35 staff members so far tested have tested negative. Uh, but I guess some of the concerns are it takes longer for for the more the more traditional tests to get the the specification that it was, in fact, a COVID variant, not a, a, a normal, I guess we call it, COVID case. Are, are you concerned that with Surrey being such a dense school district, there are bigger classes, uh, and with the detection of variants, that there could be more potential for transmission? For sure. Yep, absolutely. I mean, when we look at the numbers overall, if you look at some of the CDC maps, uh, you know, I did a presentation for both staff and for parents yesterday, and, and you know, our neighbouring districts uh, have in the range of 2,000 cases, uh, you know, in Langley and Delta overall. We're talking going back in time, but Surrey's had close to 21,000. When you look at Vancouver as a whole, has about 10,000 cases, and again, us with well over 20. So there's no question that Surrey is a hot spot, and, uh, you know, your question 
question is, am I concerned? Sure, I am. Absolutely. As a parent and, uh, you know, as a superintendent, and that's why it's like so important you hear our messaging all the time about staying vigilant and, and get back to the basics and make sure that everybody's doing everything they can. Um, what advice do you have uh, to other parents uh, who might be hesitant or might be hearing about these cases and, and worried and maybe even thinking about getting not sending their kids back to school? Um, I, I mean, I do believe school is a safe place. I mean, <clears throat> we're all out there in the community, you know, uh, in various ways, whether it's, you know, the coffee shop or the grocery store or walking around. And, and when I, you know, ultimately I'm responsible for the protocols in our district. And when I see all the extent we go to, I think we go to great measures. I think when we look at the, 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 like the very large volumes of cases in our community and how we've managed to stem this tide in school, uh, I feel confident. I mean, my my family is here, uh, and so we we feel safe, but we feel also nervous, like any parent. And so, uh, you know, if there were changes in the guidelines, we'd do that. Um, and I totally understand for parents who feel uh, unsure or nervous, it, it's only natural uh, that people do. And so, uh, hopefully, the guidelines will hold in, and and we'll get through this together. All right, uh, Jordan Tinney, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right, you're welcome. We started the show speaking with Jordan Tinney, who is the superintendent of the Surrey School District, talking about the exposures of COVID-19 variants in five schools in that school district. Uh, another school had an exposure, not a variant exposure, though. Joining me now on the line to continue talking about this is Cindy Dalglish, a PAC president at Ecole Woodward Hill and a parent in that district. Cindy Dalglish, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Uh, much better than I was this weekend, that's for sure. It was uh, nice to hear that uh, the 35 affected staff, all came, all their tests came back negative. So that presented quite a, a bit of relief. And we're just waiting now for the students that are affected to be tested. And hopefully we know by Wednesday that they are also all clear. And so you are the PAC president at Cole Woodward, one of the schools that is impacted by this. How has that been dealing with parents and, and, and like you said, over the weekend, dealing with the, getting, finding out about the testing and figuring out what the next steps are? Yeah, rightly so. As soon as uh, the information broke that we were having some struggles with the COVID variant in our school, you know, rightly, the a lot of parents were concerned and were asking lots of good questions. Um, you know, it's a bit of a roller coaster because we had all the questions on Saturday, but by Sunday at around two o'clock after our meeting with Jordan Tinney, um, most of those questions had been answered and there was that little bit of calm and then, of course, the uh, finding out the results last night that of the staff was also really helpful in bringing those calm that calm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's stressful to hear in your community that there's uh, this new variant has come in. I think we've all just started to accept what COVID is, and now we've got this added stress on us with the variant. So, kind of feels like we're back to March of last year a little bit. Yeah. Um, the Surrey Teachers Association uh, was on Mornings with Simi today. Uh, Matt Westfall, the president, saying that he that this is this is what should be leading us in a, the direction of uh, school districts being able to kind of bring in their own rules, bring in more stringent rules if they want to. Uh, but on the other hand, like you said, 35, the 35 teachers that were tested, we now know that they all tested negative. Uh, does that show that the rules that are in place, the measures that are in place are working? 
I would say, first off, is I completely support a more regional approach. Surrey has been hard hit. While our school has been successful, pretty successful with mass compliance, with um, obviously with the results of the staff testing, um, that's not the case for all the schools in Surrey. And we've, we've only got a handful of schools left now that haven't had any COVID exposures. Um, uh, and I do think it's time for a regional approach. What's working in the North Island isn't necessarily going to work in a dense population area like ours is. Uh, so I do, I do fully subscribe to that. But I do believe our, having said that, I do believe our administration, such as Jordan Tinney, our principals, our staff, they are doing their level best. But, um, you know, it's wearing pretty darn thin on everyone, I got to tell you. What would you like to see then if it was more of a regional approach and Surrey could bring in measures just specific, even specific to schools or specific to the district? What do you think would help? Uh, I definitely would like to see more mask uh, wearing being done throughout the schools again our school it's kind of i feel like a bit of an exception to the rule we've got really good compliance with mask wearing and our pack has been really involved in in letting families know we really do promote mask wearing at all times so while it can't come necessarily from the district it can certainly come from the packs and the parents to say go ahead and and tell your kids to wear masks all day uh, sitting at their desk even if they're comfortable wearing it let them wear it um But I do, you know, again, Surrey, Jill, you and I have talked a lot about Surrey and our our overcrowdedness in the past. You know, we can't build schools overnight to to help with the crowding, but maybe we could be looking at more opportunities for remote learning. Maybe we could be looking at opportunities for blended learning that, you know, we could open up further than we already have now. So I think there's just a few more things that could happen, a little more tweaks that could happen to support uh, to support getting to COVID zero. Uh, what would you say then when you we talk about the schools or at that level, the pack level, that's where the, the call is going out to people as far as uh, wear a mask if you can. Uh, do you have an idea what the compliance level is or rate is for that? I don't have a rate because obviously I'm not in the schools, but you know, when I'm talking to teachers in the school or talking to the admin or EAs that, that just that they're pretty happy with how families have have managed to get their kids to wear masks. If I'm on the school grounds picking up my children, I'm seeing maybe one adult without a mask out of all the adults that are there. So, you know, I would call that 99% compliance on the school grounds. Um, so, you know, I think that there is a comfort level around mask wearing in our school. I just know that that's not the case in every school and we should be all kind of doing the same thing so we can all have the same compliance or same uh, results. And have you talked to other parents or got an idea of, uh, Jordan Tinney was talking about the the fact that there are 10 classes uh, isolated, 50 uh, teachers or 50 staff members as well, but it's not an automatic 14-day self-isolation. It's an isolation until uh, a negative test can be produced. Does that give people a bit more, um, I don't know if it's a bit more ease or a bit more confidence in that you're not walking around waiting every day to be told possibly that you have to go isolate for 14 days? Yeah, I mean, one of my I'll give an example. My youngest is at home in one of those those isolation classes, um, not the variant related. Um, so her her expiry is tonight at midnight. So she gets to go back to school tomorrow, and we're excited for that. Um, I do, I do like the idea that we can, and I think families in general like the idea 
that they can get a negative test and, and their kid can go back into school, especially with the delay of when we're finding out, because if we're if it's incubated and we're finding out and then we go get tested, the timing seems to me to line up that, yes, you get a negative test, you can go back to school rather than isolating for the full 14 days. So it does make sense that we're moving in that direction. Right, because that's been one of the concerns about this too. And I think in these cases, because there was one exposure uh, in one case that went back to, to at some point last month or at the end of January, and it does take longer to get those confirmations of variant cases that some people were saying just that, that if you're not finding out until so much later, there's the chance, the potential you've already exposed other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's kind of unknown about the variant is that the people that had COVID or have or had COVID with the variant, they were already in isolation well before we knew they had the variant. So all the work had already been done and this proactiveness of doing the rapid testing last night really kind of goes to speak to, okay, now that we know it's the variant, let's see if there's others that are asymptomatic so we can try to stop that spread. And I really liked that approach, but I don't think a lot of people realize that these aren't cases that are just from a couple of days ago and they're still in our schools. Um, So the expectation that we're going to have no more cases coming out of this is, is where our heads are at. So we'll know for sure in a couple of days. All right. No, that's a very, a very good point. Cindy, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I know it's been a very busy weekend and busy day, but thanks for your time. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Well, you might have heard this story in the news. A father speaking out about concerns about his toddler contracting COVID-19 at a Burnaby daycare centre. And Andrew Longhurst is speaking out, saying he's frustrated. His son's case, we now know, could be linked to that trivia night that we heard about at a pub in Port Moody. Uh, Longhurst is calling on the province to deploy rapid testing kits to daycare centres and places like daycare centres where we could see more outbreaks, especially talking about the variants of this virus. Now, on the bright side, his 18-month-old son, Levi, is doing well. He has tested positive for COVID-19, but has minimal symptoms, just very mild symptoms. His others in the family also isolated. Andrew Longhurst's wife also passed, has tested positive about a week later. And Longhurst himself, though, remained negative, at least up until the point of uh, this story going to air yesterday. But the question of rapid testing in daycare has been asked before, and this is once again highlighting it. So joining me to talk a bit more about this is Alison Merton, Director of the Early Years Department at the Collingwood Neighbourhood House. Thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Jill. Thank you. Uh, What are your thoughts about the idea of deploying or using rapid tests at daycare centres? Well, I think any additional tools and guidance is always welcomed, um, you know, as an addition um, to our current health and safety plans that centres have in place, because we do know that COVID is part of our community. Do we know of any other cases or do we know of other exposures that have happened at daycare centres? I'm not sure there's any um, any uh, noted exposures or certainly outbreaks, um, but I think it's probably safe to say that most most centres have, you know, have knowledge of, you know, some some um, exposures within their own communities because it is out there for everybody. Right, and it wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be abnormal for somebody, a child that's at a daycare centre, to have a sibling uh, in a public school scenario Correct. or something like that. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there's many cases of, of self-isolations where, you know, parents and, and um, children and siblings are being self-isolated just out of precaution. And how is it in daycare settings as well? Because I know this came up uh, closer to, to when we first started to figuring out what was happening with this pandemic. The daycare centres, for the most part, did stay open, but it's got to be difficult to follow even the most basic of hand washing and, and rules to try and, and keep the, the risk low. Yeah, so the health and safety plans that we've put in place, you know, have been creating using our best practices, which is what we always do in childcare settings. Um, and using the guidance within the, um, the what the, the BC Centre for Disease Control have, have put out with the Provincial Health Authority, which just were recently updated, you know. So using all those tools that we have in place, all those guidances we have in place, is you know is what's what's helping us keep our doors open. And is the concern coming mainly then from uh, is it uh, for, from people working in daycare centres or other parents? Uh, not that it's not serious if a child contracts the virus, but certainly it's been shown to such as this case, uh, the toddler in question just has mild symptoms. But is the concern then uh, the possibility of it spreading to others and spreading, say, to, to grandparents or people who are more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. So we're very happy to hear that that child only has mild symptoms um, as does the family. Um, so the risk between child to child is very, very low, um, you know, as, as pointed out in the guidelines. And, you know, even the, you know, child to adult is very low. You know, really just is the focus should be on adult to adult, um, you know, so that's you know, when you're working in a childcare program with others, with other adults, you need to be practicing social distancing. You need to be wearing masks. There's a whole set of levels, you know, of those control measures that are in place to protect everybody. And, you know, that is, you know, then they do go home to their families, you know, and there is that potential for, for the elders and the older seniors in our population to, uh, to be exposed, um, you know, through mainly the adults, mainly the adults. So do you know if there have been any requests made or would it be something that daycares would do on their own or if there's some kind of uh, effort on behalf of, of daycares to ask the province about the possibility of rapid testing? I'm, I'm not aware of any um, any requests for that at the moment. The child care sector, you know, we are networking all the time um, with our colleagues and we know that there is consistency in the health and safety plans that we all have in place. You know, at Collingwood, we regularly review our health and safety plans to make sure that the necessary adjustments are being made um, within the guidelines that we be provided with. Right. And it sounds like it's working and it sounds like these protocols are what's needed and they are being being followed. Like you said, be, the, the, the case in point that, that your doors have been able to stay open. Yeah, I think our early childhood educators are working extremely hard every day, just like the teachers in our school systems, to mitigate the risk of of the COVID-19 in our programs, you know, to make sure that, you know, they're regularly adhering to those health and safety plans, because in the end, that's what everybody wants. We want to stay healthy. We want to stay safe, you know, and ensure that we can go back to our families and do that at the end of our days. All right. Alison, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, a tweet went out that is quite alarming, saying situation critical, Metro Vancouver, Friday night, 29 ambulances unstaffed, one hour wait for urgent calls, four to 16 hour wait for non 
emergency. So what is happening and what has led to that kind of wait time? Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union President, as well as an active paramedic. Troy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having us on. Well, that's a pretty alarming number to think of waits being that long on a Friday night. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it's gotten to this, but it definitely got escalated to the point where we, we really felt we needed to sound the sound the alarm. Um, you know, we've been trying to work for a while with, with BCEHS and PHSA, and we just haven't been able to get the acknowledgement of how serious this is. Um, so, And it, you know, really escalated to the point where it was on the weekend that... Uh, that the paramedics were just uh, exhausted, and the dispatchers just uh, that seen the you know the the worst case scenario over what has been what we've described as their worst month. But uh, definitely this weekend was uh, tested everything we have on the front lines to to keep the keep the ambulances uh, up and running and respond to the needs of the public. So, what was it specific then that led to these waits on Friday night? So uh, sadly, it wasn't just Friday night, uh, you know, Saturday night, the whole weekend seeing those same same numbers. And we've seen it the weekend before was a similar situation. Um, and so what, it's been progressing uh, worse since, uh, I'd say, last summer, where we've been seeing an escalation of shortages of staff to actually fill the ambulances. Not not that the ambulances are are not working or anything. They're actually parked without staff is the, is the problem we're seeing. And we're seeing up to 30% uh, of our ambulances, particularly in the lower mainland, on uh, GRD areas, not staff. And really what, what's led up to it is um, failure to uh, really to hire and, and, and administer the filling of vacancies and uh, recruitment and retention to fill those, those vacancies coming in. And it's not, uh, we don't have, we have shortage of paramedics around the province, but we we haven't been able to convince the leadership of BCHS and PHSA how serious this is um, regarding being ahead of the solutions uh, to sustain these type of things. So it doesn't affect patient care or or uh, paramedics' well-being. So when you say there are staffing shortages, is there a number then of how many paramedics there should be in BC compared to how many there are actively working in BC right now? Well, that's a tough one to say. We have 4,500 paramedics and dispatchers that cover the whole province, um, and that's a mix of uh, full-time, uh, regular part-time, and on-call members. Primarily, most about 75% of the province is covered by on-call members, which is part-time, um, and that's a, a, a definitely precarious uh, situation, and that causes some challenges in the rural and remote. But within the lower mainland, it's uh, primarily all full-time and backfilled with on-call or... Um, other full-time models and what's happened is that they tend to be reactive three months behind if you wish the as opposed to being proactive and filling vacancies in advance uh, so that you you have the attrition and the moving around and that so you wouldn't have those vacancies that we're seeing every shift there's other reasons for it it's complicated as you you can imagine it's not a new issue but there are some short-term administrative things that we've been proposing as solutions to backfill these things like proactively scheduling and uh, and and scheduling backfills not unlike other health authorities like the hospitals they they uh, schedule for peaks and valleys uh, of uh, staffing needs um, and uh, for for whatever reason the the organization has been reluctant to first of all acknowledge um, the shortfalls and that's really what's causing uh, some rub with the paramedics and really uh, on the weekend that uh, uh, essentially blew up my phone and a number of people that uh, the fatigue was just uh, they 
we need some help here. We need some acknowledgement. And that's why I've been reaching out to the ministry recently about uh, getting their help to, 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 to hold the accountability to who is responsible, the BCAHS and, and PHSA, to manage the ambulance service and work with us for some short-term solutions and long-term solutions for sustainability. And we do have those. Right. So to answer your question on numbers, uh, if, if we're short, uh, let's say just 20 uh, paramedics or to fill, say, 10 ambulances, you know, you need two paramedics in, in each ambulance. So, you, you know, you can do the math that, that if we're short 20 ambulances on average every day, um, that's about 80 if you cross four platoons, which is a, we work on a four on, four off. Mm-hmm. So you need to immediately you need about 80 to recruited into the lower mainland and that would be a short-term influx and then once you sustain that then you wouldn't need that same recruiting numbers and there's a lot of numbers when when you say when you tweeted out that 29 ambulances were unstaffed is that 29 ambulances that should have been on the road would have been on the road and weren't because there weren't staff that's exactly right Um, and that accounts to about 30 percent of uh of our our resources and that's the whole regional region lower mainland house sound right out to the Fraser Valley. So that's not just GVRD proper. So that's uh, that's about 30% of our resources in the lower mainland uh, area. Um, so yeah, that that is uh, exactly what it is. They're parked without staff to staff them and respond to ambulance calls. So, and when you also, the next line says one hour wait for urgent calls. So on Friday night, or, or sounds like Saturday night as well, if somebody had called 911 with a medical emergency, they needed medical attention immediately, uh, what would have happened then? They would have been waiting an hour for an ambulance or would have a fire department truck had come, would have come instead? What would have happened? So how it works, yeah. So uh, there was up to, uh, because of the shortages of ambulances, I'm advised by uh, paramedics and dispatchers that were working on the streets and that, that that uh, there was delays of emergency calls up to an hour. And yes, the first responders uh, assist us, and, and that, but that doesn't alleviate the need for the uh, intervention by paramedics and trans- treatment and transport to hospitals. And that's what our primary role is. So that adds to the fatigue for the paramedics, uh, you know, the stress that that puts on them on an already stressful job and, and the first responders. So yeah, so that uh, that is pretty significant uh, um, numbers to delay an emergency call. When we talk about things like five to Eight minutes uh, is the uh, expected targets for emergency response times in, in urban areas. That's significantly different. And we know that the outcomes are on patients are, are significant should we, uh, based on interventions of critical interventions such as CPR and those type of things. And um, when we hear of those kind of numbers, that's why uh, we took the unusual measure today of uh, raising and founding the alarm that the situation is critical. We're saying to people it's not broken. But it definitely needs some attention, and that's where I, I'm, I you know, I want to acknowledge the government. They've been, they've been listening to us the last little while, and uh, want to meet with us and hear what our solutions are. And uh, we've been asking them for for assistance with holding the uh, management of BCAHS, who is ultimately accountable for this, to answer the question: Why, why is this, is this going on? But as a union and profession in BC, we're 100 percent on board to solve these pro- problems and work with uh, our partners to make sure that. Uh, our patient needs are met and our paramedic needs are and the wellness of all um, because we don't want to see any outcomes affected or people dying because of um, delayed ambulance responses. Has there also been a change in call volumes or the types of calls given that we're in a pandemic? There's also the ongoing opioid crisis. Has that, is that a factor? Yeah. So I think, so the ongoing, we're coming up to five years. We're seeing up to five people dying a day across this province 
in every corner, uh, you know, 75 overdoses across the province a day. Those are increased numbers. We, we heard recently from, from the coroner that, uh, you know, our, we had our worst year ever for numbers and um, COVID numbers are up and the impacts of COVID have definitely added to our call volumes on top of what we call our regular responses. And, and that's huge. The, uh, to add all those into the, and it's exposed our vulnerability as a service that we have failed to address staffing and workload long-term and, and short-term. So that's, I, I think, it's a product of a whole number of things, and it's not an easy solution. But really, we need acknowledgement and recognition of the work the paramedics are doing because they're picking up these calls, and they're physically exhausted, and that's leading to fatigue, more book-offs, all that, which is only exasperates the, the, the problem we're facing. And, and instead of, uh, uh, we need to address it, and, and that's what we're calling out for, I think. All right. Well, Troy, thanks for coming on the program uh, to talk about this today. Uh, we're going to follow up on it for sure. But thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joe. And you have a good afternoon and please be safe.